It's time to fire up the three-cylinder star drive, the show that sputters along, touring a galaxy of pop culture and fanboy fiction. And now, here are your hosts, Richard Coots and Roger Colby. Hey, welcome back to Three Cylinder Star Drive. I'm Roger Colby. And I'm Richard Coots. Hey, uh, today we went to see Hellboy. Yep, the uh, 2019 reboot starring mm-hmm. David, Har- uh, David Harbour as Hellboy, who mm-hmm. is, I felt like, is very... He was probably perfect casting. If if you love the Rotten Perlman version, he while this is definitely different from that, mm-hmm. um, those films, it, he does give a very similar performance to Ron Perlman. I mean, he's even he's got like the voice down, the the the, yeah. the just the tone and uh, the way he speaks. But it's still not Ron Perlman. It's not. It's Ron, not like he's mimicking Ron. No, Perlman. no, he's not mimicking Ron Perlman. But I think it's kind of like one of those things where it's just like. He just got perfect casting. It's like mm-hmm. Ron Perlman did that character so well that it's kind of become it, it it's become it it's become a bit I don't know if I call it iconic. It kinda has. It so yeah. this is kinda like, oh yeah, that's Hellboy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Ron, Ron Perlman. It, it's kinda like uh Hugh Jackman. Hugh Jackman's Wolverine. You know, you just see Hugh Jackman as Wolverine in in those movies and stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's the film portrayal that's kind of Anyways, it's it's very similar to Ron Perlman's in that it feels like he feels like Hellboy in the same vein. But. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the film has uh, some. I mean, it's kind of like got this King Arthur thing, and then there's like um, this scary witch played by Mila Jovovich, uh, who's. It's just, I don't know if she's that scary. She's I mean, really she's, not that scary. She's um, not that scary. It's Mila Jovovich. You know what you're getting into if you see yeah. her in anything. Yeah. Um, I will say, uh, when you first go in there, don't... There's an opening scene, and it's really corny. Don't <laughs> walk out because of that scene. It, yeah. it gets better. That opening scene is just kind of really corny. Yeah, it was really corny. And um, we were, Richard and I were sitting there watching it. We were like, kind of nudging each other, going, "Oh, is this how the rest of the movie's gonna yeah. be?" Yeah. And then, you know, it really surprised me. I didn't go in with very many expectations because of all the bad reviews it's gotten. Um, I, I wasn't expecting much. Uh, so what I got was a lot more than I expected. I thought it was. It's not a great movie, but it is watchable. And it is entertaining. It's it's a lot of fun. It is. It's a lot of fun. Um, there's a and lot it's of funny. It's funny. There's a lot uh-huh. of great humor in this. Um, all the characters are are um, clever and early. I will say that Daniel Day Kim, he plays uh, Ben Daimyo, and I think his first name is Ben. Yeah. Um, anyways, Daimyo, and um, who uh, he he's American. And he does not do a very good British accent. No, he Neither doesn't. does Mila Jovovich. No. So it's just, yeah, if you can get past that, it, it's really it's really a fun movie. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's, I thought what was crazy about it was while it was um, certainly grittier and dark, uh-huh. darker than, like, the Guillermo del Toro films, it was also a lot goofier, and it seemed to, <laughs> and, yeah. and it really... Uh, leaned into the comic book uh, side of it, um, just uh-huh. kind of the go- silliness of the comic books. Like you had um, 
the character, he, he shows up, his name, I won't spoil any of it for you, but he's played by Thomas Hayden Church, and he shows up, and he plays a character called Lobster Johnson, and it's so, it's so funny, because it almost feels like some, like a really dumb character out of The Tick. Yeah, That's really does. what it felt like, so it's like, um, it's really funny. But it's fun, it's, it is funny, and, uh. He, I mean, it's a character that's in the Mike Mignola comic books. Yeah, that's books, what I'm saying. It's really leaning... And it is kind of goofy in the comic books, too. Yeah, it's, that's what I'm saying. It's really leaning into the comic book mm-hmm. side in this film, and I really like it. <laughs> but, man, then it's, like, super gory, too. It is. It is super gory. It's, it's definitely an R-rated film for the gore. I mean, it's graphic. I mean, mm-hmm. um, there's, there's a bit at the end of the film, and I'm not going to give it away at all, but it's like, you know... People being killed in ways that you yeah. just like, ooh, that's pretty it, inventive. Yeah, it, it, they got pretty creative with the uh, with I mean, the. They're being uh, killed for a reason. I mean, mass it's not like murder, it's just, right? Just violence for violence' sake. Yeah. But it is, it'll haunt my dreams. I, I don't know. I, it could be seen for both ways. How creative they got with it, you could you could look at it and think, yeah, maybe well, they were. Well, I going get that it. what's happening is yeah. Is it's important? I'm not that, against it, honestly. Yeah. I think I think violence isn't really a big deal in in films. I a lot of like people like us that are Christians have like a big problem with it, but you know what? It's not real. <laughs> it's that's kind of the difference between that and like movies with a ton of movie nudity and sex in it, and because you know the nudity is real, the violence is not. It's just it's it's all fake, but. Um, and I, I have a very soft spot for comic violence. Huh. <laughs> I love comic violence, and that's what this is. This is a lot of very, very, com- uh, a lot of comic violence. It's yeah. it, it's played for it's 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 shocking, but at the same time, it's played it's somewhat played for laughs. <laughs> it's so creative; it's hard not to look at that and go, "Oh, that's 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 kind of." That's entertaining. <laughs> All those entrails. Uh, <laughs> basically, I mean, it's got really believable villains. Um, you know, it's it's the same kind of, you know, Cthulhu-esque world of, you know, of, of Hellboy. Um, you know, he is who he is. You know, he's... He's got this destiny that's, you know, that's... And that plagues him all through the comics. That's mm-hmm. not a spoiler. I mean, he's supposed to be the, the harbinger of the end of the world. And and that goes all through the comic books all, all the time. But he's constantly battling that part of himself. And it's because of Professor Bl- Broom that he becomes, you know, this good guy who tries to save the world, you know. Um, and he's an anti-hero. Of course he's an anti-hero. Mm-hmm. Um... But, you know, uh, I thought that the uh, performances were good. Yeah. I thought that, uh, I mean, and, you know, special effects are kind of cool, too. There's some yeah. interesting things yeah. being done with spirits and stuff like that, you know. Um, uh, it's, it's. Uh, I, I thought, I really liked Ian McShane's version. This is a very, Ian McShane's version of Dr. Broom, and this is very different from the one that John Hurt played. This one different. is is more, um, is it Cockney, I guess? Um no, not no, really cocky, no, he's but just British. Just very British, but he's barely <laughs> he's barely gruff and 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 pretty profane. But the um, Professor Broom that we had in the original Hellboy films uh-huh. was closer to the comic book. It was. Movie. This is very this that's what I was 
fixing to get to. It's very different from the comics and mm -hmm. from the version that John Hurt played, who's more of like this kind of soft-spoken, fatherly character. And Ian McShane here is a father, fatherly character here, you know. Um, but he, but he's also very you know, like matter of the fact. But he's a dad, so you know, he's yeah. kick you in the pants. And yeah, say, yeah, he's, he's very, he's very matter of fact <laughs> kind, yeah. kind of father. <laughs> he's, he's like. Put on your big boy pants. That kind of father. Um, so, um, I'm going to give the movie three and a half stars. I'm going to give it, yeah, I guess I'll give it three and a half. Um, yeah. It's um, not quite four. No. It's three and a half is right about where it should be, I think. I think, yes. Yeah, I do hope the movie makes a sequel because it does have end credit scenes, if you if you didn't know this. Yeah. It does have end credit scenes, and they're really interesting. So, we've said this time and time again on this podcast, do not listen to Hollywood critics. Go to a movie, make your own opinion. Yeah. And guess, you know, a lot of times they're wrong. Honestly, I mean, they're just I'm a out big of touch. Fan. I'm a big fan of Mike McNeil's comic mm -hmm. book, and I liked it. Okay? Um, I think it was close to the comic book enough to where it was, it was you know, interesting, but also it, to, to stay to canon, you know, mm -hmm. stay to, like, the things that we like Hellboy for, you know. The well, snarkiness and all that mm -hmm. stuff. Well, he was much more... Mike Mignola was actually a lot more involved with this film than he was mm -hmm. around the Guillermo del Toro stuff. Yeah, he's he ar was. He's already dis discussing what he'd like to do for the sequel. Yeah. What storylines that he wrote that he'd and like these, to do for And these villains it. and stuff that are in this, there's a lot of them. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of really bad people, bad guys, I guess you could call them. Um, people that Hellboy's fought in the past. And also, there's kind of a backstory that we haven't really heard much of. Like, what he's done in the past, like, there's these little flashback scenes where things happen, you know, where mm -hmm. he's done things. Um, you know, so, I mean, it's, I don't know, three and a half is pretty good for me. Yep, I, I like I'm going to do that. Okay, so we don't have, uh, yeah, so go see Hellboy, go, go support Hellboy. it. It's good, go support buy, it. Buy it on video, I'll buy yeah. it on video. Yeah. Um, so we don't really have a retro pilot or... Or a uh, movie of the week this no, week, so no, we're gonna we're talk. Yeah, we've been a little busy, so we're gonna talk a little bit about Star Trek Discovery. Mm -hmm. Since the season finale of season two is yep, coming up. it's coming up this next week. So yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so we I broke down and got CBS CBS All Access because I wanted to watch the Twilight Zone because that was the, that was the the kicker that caused me to. Go, oh yeah, I want to watch that. So I've been watching Twilight Zone, and it's 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 Twilight Zoney, I guess it's kind of okay. But I I also was like, hey, you know, I can watch this Star Trek show now, this Discovery, and man, I started watching it, and it's just it's really just like really really good. I'm I'm really shocked. Like, and I'm I'm a I'm an old school Star Trek fan too, um, but I'm also a Star Wars fan, <laughs> so. Um, I've talked to Star Trek fans that are like your old school Star Trek fans and they hate this Star Trek Discovery show. And I'm like, I get why they hate it, but it's the same reason that, um, these fans of Star Wars hate the new Star Wars movies. It's like they're taking something that they love and changing it all up and really they're not changing it all up not that really. much. And here's the deal with this. They're not. Get over it. Here's the deal with this. They're, this is a different timeline mm -hmm. from, just like the J.J. Abrams movies, this is a different timeline. It's not even the different. same timeline it as J.J. Abrams. No, it's a completely different timeline. Yeah. Although, 
that upcoming Picard series coming up is within the J.J. Abrams timeline. That's cool. They're calling it uh, the Kelvin timeline. Any, Which I don't... Honestly, I'm not a huge Star Trek fan, so I'm it's, sorry if I'm not... The Kelvin the Kelvin timeline so, is, is is a whole other podcast worth of yeah, stuff. I mean, it's I, a lot. I, just, I don't know a whole lot about Star Trek, so yeah. don't quiz me on any of that stuff. If you want to know hearing, about it, look it up. I'm just, I'm just hearing what, I, what I've heard from... From interviews and stuff. Yeah. I don't know what the Kelvin timeline means. I just know that the Kelvin timeline is J.J. Abrams. That's all I know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm not I'm not a huge Star Trek fan. Uh-huh. So I guess maybe that's why I enjoy this a little more. Because I don't really have... I don't, I'm not so hardcore into it that I take issue with any liberties they're doing. I think that the, I think that one of the beefs that uh, old school Star Trek fans have with the new Star Trek is it doesn't have enough like... Um, social commentary or whatever it is. Um, yeah, that worked at one time, I think. Um, but the biggest problem that I had with Star Trek, and this is the thing, I, I didn't like, with old Star Trek, I didn't like it when they stood around and talked galactic politics for five hours and didn't get down to any action or getting down to any kind of like story like this driving forward, like character involvement and stuff like that. It's like we got to explain this whole thing and have this info dump of all this information that you need to know so we can move forward with the movie. And it's like you look at all the movies that are odd numbered movies in Star Trek and they're all bad. I, I know that I know that the first one was just kind of trying to set up a franchise and stuff like that. That's what they make the case for. But it's a real dumb story. And then the, 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 Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan, classic. Classic um, good guy versus bad guy, almost Shakespearean in level. I mean, it was amazing. Star Trek Three: Search for Spock. The hardcore Star Trek fans make the case that it's about, like, oh, well, it's just setting up for, you know, four where we're going back to get Kirk or go back to get Spock or whatever and bring him back. I'm like, well, make one movie. And do Star Trek three and four in one film, and the Save the Whales thing, it's pretty funny. I like that movie because it's just hilarious um, and makes fun of itself. Uh, but five was like, I want to be a director now, says <laughs> Leonard Nimoy. Yeah. And, make, and then six was pretty awesome. Uh, I thought it was a little too over the top with all the Shakespeare stuff um, and a little bit preachy and whatever. Uh, but it was pretty good. Um, and then, you know, on down the road, you've got all these weird Star Trek movies. But when they... And, and you know, I really, really, really loved Next Generation. Mm-hmm. I absolutely love that show. It still holds holds up. You Shut can up, still, Wesley. You can still watch it and enjoy it. And, um, you know, you can watch it with your kids. You can watch it with your family. It's a great family show. Um, and then, you know, DS9 got a little dark and, you know... Oh, gosh, I don't even talk about Star Trek Enterprise. That was horrible. Um, but it just started to fall apart. I mean, their whole franchise began to fall apart. And the reason it did was because it was that same old model they were using over and over again and not really trying to do anything new. Well, when Abrams came along, is like, let's revamp this whole thing. Let's completely redo it. Let's, uh, you know, make it into something that's, you know, more like, shall I say, Star Wars. Yeah. But, I mean, it, it was more like... Um, well, you know, let's you redo a, it, but at the same time, let's not redo it. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, the way it was done, it was like, this is what J.J. Abrams sees Star Trek as in his mind when he's 
thinking about Kirk and Spock and McCoy and all that. This is what he sees, you know. And I get that. That's fine. I don't mind a director taking something and going, this is the way I see it. You know, um, you can take it or leave it. You can enjoy it with me or not. But this is how I see this franchise. Um, and I think what, what Abrams did allowed them to be able to do more stuff like this. Because honestly, I don't think if it wasn't for Abrams coming in and re-injecting life into that, that series, it may have died. Because honestly, nobody was watching Star Trek, and it was dying in the TV. I mean, it was the ratings are just killing it. Nobody's watching it, and I'm like, well, if you and, and it's a franchise that deserves to live because it's a good franchise. See, I was just never that into Star Trek, and Abrams, J.J. Abrams' film, he's the one that brought me into it. He's the one that made me like Star Trek. Mm-hmm. So if it wasn't for Abrams' films, I probably wouldn't even be watching Discovery but right now. The whole idea, I mean, the other the other argument is, okay, we have this huge federation. This is the problem I've always had with the federation mm-hmm. of planets. Um, this huge federation of planets, a bunch of different planets, all working together in harmony into the utopia, and everything's great. And of course, you got the Klingons, all these bad people trying to break it up all the time. And honestly, I don't think that a federation of planets would be running that smoothly, because I am more of a pessimist. Yeah. <laughs> and I really don't see the, I don't see the whole utopian society. I get what Roddenberry was trying to do. He was like trying to show us that in the future, we're going to be much more in harmony with one another. We're going to figure out how to solve poverty and wealth and all that stuff and we're going to have a happy life but you know what there's always going to be a Klingon man and there's always going to be a Romulan and there's always going to be a Borg and there's always going to be people like that that's going to screw it all up it's never going to be all happy rainbows man right and that's where discovery comes in oh they man, have the federation it. and all that but you know they show that it is not that smooth no um and you're going to have people within your own organization that's working against mm-hmm. what you're doing mm-hmm. because they think they know what's best. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and not only that, you're going to have people doing things because, hey, we're winning games right now, so just let this guy do whatever he wants to do because he's winning games, if you know what I'm saying. I'm not trying to – I don't want to spoil yeah, it. Yeah. But it's like guys winning games, so even though he's a megalomaniac and he's crazy and he's, you know, he's using um, – He's putting people at risk and doing all this stuff. Um, we're just going to sit back and let him do it because he's he's keeping us alive, mm-hmm. you know. And and um, that's you know the Star the, the hardcore Star Trek fan, the one that hates new Star Trek, looks at that and goes, "Well, that's just not Star Trek. That's just not the way things are." But that's the way things are in the world. That's mm-hmm. the way humans are. And to deny that part of the human experience. The fact that there are people who are going to screw it up because they're just ambitious or they're driven by their emotions. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the way it is, man. And I like a Star Trek that's more realistic. Yeah. Um, now, without getting a spoiler, this isn't really spoilers because, you know, it's a, it's in the description and everything for season two. They bring in Spock. Mm-hmm. In season two, and this is a very different version of Spock. Okay, I haven't watched that far into it. Is that Jeremy Quinto? It is not. Okay, it's a different actor. He's got a beard now. Spock <laughs> has a beard now, and he's got a very weird shaped beard. Well, man, he had a beard. He had a beard in Star Trek 
Star Trek Two. Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. But he has Star a very Trek, the Star Trek the motion picture. He had a beard. Yeah, he has a very and, he has a very diff, weird shaped beard though in this. Um, <laughs> weird shape. Is it a yeah? Beard? It, nah, it's like got like it's like, like this mirror, little mirror beard. It's like this little triangle shape in the middle. It's kind of weird. <laughs> but anyways, he Spock in this is pretty great. So the main character, um, Michael Burnham. Played by uh, Sonequa Martin Green, yeah. she um, was raised on Vulcan mm-hmm. by Spock's father, um, Sark. Sark, yeah, yeah. Sark, and um, apparently they, her parents were killed mm-hmm. and in a Klingon attack, and they raised her. But the whole deal is they they didn't just bring, adopt her to to uh, you know just to raise her in the ways of Vulcan and stuff. They brought there because they wanted. Spock, who's half human, which that's the part I'm, I'm sure one that the old Star Trek people hate, which is what what J.J. Abrams brought in was that he's half human now, Spock. And, no, he was that way in the original. Oh, he was okay. Yeah, in the original I, Star Trek, he's okay. a half, half human, half Vulcan. Let me say once again, I was never that into Star Trek. <laughs> um, <laughs> that uh, I'm sorry. Um, anyways, they bring they adopt her and bring her in the house so he can get inside with. Her human side, they want her to like learn the ways of of Vulcan to bring that logical thinking mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. the Federation. Yeah. But then they also want Spock to learn empathy from her, from yeah. from Michael. So, and that's kind of a great dynamic. And you get into season two, and you find out they're estranged and all that. And I won't spoil anything else. That's just kind of that's kind of set up for for a season two. There's a lot, but of, it, there's a lot of great drama. There's a lot of great that. drama. Also, um, what I like about this is that there's, man, there's a whole bunch of three dimensional kind of things in the story. Um, one is that, okay, like in the original Star Trek, you had like the Vulcans, and they have their Vulcan thing that they all do. It seems like every Vulcan seems the same and kind of two dimensional. I mean, they all they all have a society that's kind of the same and they're all, you know, driven by logic and blah, blah, blah. But, man, what this series brings out is that there's, like, factions within that where there's, like, some Vulcans that are so... Yeah, they call them logical extremists. Logical extremists, where these people are just so bent on being absolutely logical, they're willing to kill themselves in order to bring about a full, total, logical society. And it's like, you've got, and then you've got the other side, which is like, well, we need a little bit of emotion in that mix, and we need to control our emotions, but we need to be, what you know, it is, it really gives us new kind of um, depth to a lot of the cultures that you see in the, in, in the films and in, in, in this whole uh, series of films and movies and TV and all that. Um, but uh, it it's really cool to see, like like I said, like humans kind of in the old Star Trek, humans were kind of this. They're kind of these emotional beings, and they're driven by you know all this emotion, and they're also trying to do what's right, uh, you know, as they see fit. Their moral code and all this stuff. And the Vulcans are one thing. They're like totally logical. Don't understand your emotions. Blah blah blah. Uh, Klingons are completely and totally driven by like honor and doing their duty and you know serving the empire and all that stuff. But in this series, you see a depth that you don't see in the other Star Trek stuff. It's so much more deep. I mean, 
the whole Klingon culture that's in this in this series is so much more rich, even though I don't really like their makeup. I think it looks yeah, weird. Yeah, it's pretty. They, their heads look like potatoes. Yeah. But um, <laughs> I have the ugly of, potatoes. I have a bit of issue with them, and this is just a personal issue. They talk way too slow. Oh, yeah. Way they're, too slow. Their Klingon is, like, really slow. It's so slow that the subtitles can't really catch up. That They're moving so slow the subtitles are moving faster than them, it yeah. seems. Yeah. And you're, like, waiting for them to finish their Klingon sentence. Um, which is cool. I like hearing Klingon. It's not like, you know, uh, I'm like, don't speak Klingon. No, I think it's cool that they have them speaking Klingon through the whole thing when they're by themselves. Um, and I like, I do like the Klingon culture in this because you see so much more, um, of a rich culture than you did in, in, in even, even like Star Trek Next Generation, which really went into the whole Klingon culture, and it's driven by honor and serving the the laws of Kalis and all this stuff that they do. Um, but man, in this, it's kind of flipped around, and and um, you see this whole religious kind of fervor that they mm-hmm. have. It's a it's almost a religion with mm-hmm. them um, that honor is a religion, um, and you understand why they're motivated the way they are. I mean, it's not like they're just this these bad creatures that are just bent on world um, galactic domination well there's 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 a few there's a few they're, they're pretty there's, there's a few, a few that are bad. pretty bad um but you understand why they are yeah, what they ex- are. and you haven't gotten further into season one and into season two but i would mm-hmm. just say the klingon you you get even more insight to the klingon on um that's cool klingon culture it gets they really dig in deep and really flesh out their culture and their ways and who they are as a people and um i'll say that and back to Sarek. Sarek is probably one of the characters to really watch just for not just through the first season but through the second season the second season is just very great um Sarek, Sarek is um He's again. He's very logical and stuff. And like I said, he wants Spock to learn empathy and stuff. But you could tell, although he's very duty bound, mm-hmm. and he he's very kind of he comes off as kind of stiff. You see these moments that you realize what a he really is a caring individual, and you really see these moments. He you does. can you can tell how much he loves his wife, his uh-huh. wife, and, and Spock and Michael and stuff. And you just. He's really a great character to watch all through just season two and stuff so far as well. Season two has just been... Season two is is really Spock and, and Sarek's season as far as character development and really cool. seeing who they are as a, as people. I'm looking forward to seeing it. I mean, yeah. f- from what I've seen of Sarek, I mean, I've seen like the... There's a scene where... Uh, the, there's Well, I don't really go much into it, so I don't want to give it away. But there's a bit where he has to make a decision and he's told some information that is really damaging that he's going to have to do. Something he's going to have to make a decision. And there's this this real big reveal of why he does what he does. And it's you can see the pain on his face when he has to do it. It's like he, he must do this because... He has to make a choice between one person and another. Both of them he loves. I think he loves. Even though he's a Vulcan, I think he expresses care. And um, it's kind of like um, Commander Data. You know, when we were. Commander Data from Next Generation is kind of the Spock of that 
whole thing because he was he didn't have any emotions. He's always struggling with it, trying to figure out humans and figure out emotion, what it was. Eventually, he gets an emotion chip, which is, I don't know, it's kind of a weird thing. It's kind of funny to watch him get an emotion chip. Mm-hmm. Um, but he he says this thing like, uh, I, um, you, but you won't miss me because I'm you don't love me. You don't have the capacity to love. And he says, no, I will miss you being around. I will... I will miss you being in, in contact with you, which is his way of saying, I love you and I'm going to miss you. And it's kind of the same deal, except I think the Vulcans in this, they're suppressing incredibly strong emotion. Well, there's a scene. There's <laughs> this know, scene in Much season, more than humans could ever there's express. There's a scene in season two where you really see how much, uh, what a caring individual, how much he loves his family in mm. this one scene. I won't get talk about the scenario or anything like this, but it's a really great moment where something is happening and and he really you see him explode into like this raw kind of emotion that's unusual for him. He's still kind of composed, of course, mm-hmm. but at the same time, but he says this line he says, I am not willing to lose both my children in the same day. And oh, you really wow. see him say and you wow. know, you like, oh he really loves his kids. Huh. And um but it, here's another interesting thing I think is, is pretty awesome. The guy, I can't remember his name, the actor's name that's playing um, Spock in this. But, man, they picked a perfect guy to play the son of James Frain's Sarek because he doesn't just look like a younger James Frain. He has, his voice sounds exactly the same, like exactly mm-hmm. the same. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could, like, put them in a, in a voice booth and have them do voice back-to-back, and you wouldn't know it was... Two different well, people. What I understand is that um, now, I, this is what I've always understood about about Trek lore is that apparently, instead of Spock being born like normally, like his mother's pregnant with him, and then all that mm-hmm. stuff, because Vulcans and humans cannot mate and have children, and nor, like naturally, mm-hmm. so Spock was basically born in a test tube. He's like a genetic. Uh, mixing of two races. Well, they haven't got into that in this, if, if that's the case here in this version. That's the way it was um, in the old story. Oh, okay. But, um, I don't know if they're doing that. They haven't really talked about his birth much, except that, you know, he's got a human mother, and, mm-hmm. you know, his mother, his human mother's still around. She's still married to Sarek on yeah. on on, uh, on Vulcan uh-huh. with him, so. Um, it, yeah, I don't, maybe they'll get more into that, maybe in next season. Mm-hmm. Um You've only got one episode left in the second season, so I doubt they'll get into any more of that. They're kind of, they've got other stuff to focus on in the finale. Yeah. yeah. Um, but anyways, we love it, <laughs> and we think you should go see it because yeah. watch it because even if you are a hardcore Star Trek fan, it's great storytelling. It man. is great storytelling. That's it what is. you need at the end of the day. Is just and, great storytelling. And ultimately, wasn't that what the original Star Trek was? Was great storytelling. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the original Star Trek had some of the best written stories. Um, even the one that was uh, originally written by Harlan Ellison, and they changed it all up. <laughs> and you, real hardcore Star Trek fans, know what I'm talking about. Where they took the it's the the time the one about. Uh, where they travel back in time uh, and they meet, uh, uh, what is it? Oh, 
Well, McCoy jumps through this time thing, and they go back in time. Like, God, what is the name of this? I can't remember. It's right on the tip of my tongue. Uh, uh, City on the Edge of Forever. Okay. Um, and and in that one was written by Harlan Ellison, but they changed it up because Harlan Ellison. And this is kind of cool for you fans of Star Trek that don't know this story. Harlan Ellison wrote that episode, and they completely changed it because Harlan Ellison wanted wanted Doctor McCoy to have a drug problem. Oh man! <laughs> yeah, he wrote it so that Doctor McCoy had a drug problem, and he's pilfering some of his own drugs and getting high and stuff. And then he got an overdose of something that made him wacko, and he w- runs and jumps through this time vortex and goes and changes history, and they have to go back and fix it. And um, so, <laughs> it's but it's different the way they do it in the show because nobody at Desilu wanted to do a drug story. Mm-hmm. So they changed it up to where it was like he was accidentally injected with some kind of serum that was supposed to be to calm somebody down or whatever. And he got too much of it, and he freaked out and went through the time vortex. Yeah. But those stories, man, the city on the edge of forever has these, is a great story because it's like Kirk has to go back in time, and he has to stop McCoy from saving a woman from being run over. Because if she's not, if she survives, World War Three happens earlier than it's supposed to, apparently, because World War Three happens anyway. But. Um, it changes history and makes it so that the Enterprise never, it's in some kind of a time warp bubble or whatever it's, but the Federation never happens. None of that happens. There is a, there is a time loop episode in season one, but you know, it seems like that's obligatory for a sci-fi series. There's always like a time loop Star episode. Trek's always got time jump stuff. Yeah. This is like time. a time loop where yeah. time keeps rewinding. <laughs> My favorite next gen one time story is the one where the, they get caught in a time loop and they can't mm. get out of it. And they have to figure out how to get out of it. And, and only Data knows. Yeah, that's the way this is. There's one character that only knows that they're <laughs> in a time loop. And he's got to, he keeps trying to stop it over and over and over again. Um, that's basically this. But, you know, that's not just Star Trek. That's kind. Of, this seems kind of like an obligatory episode for a sci-fi show. Yeah, had the one Flash. recently that did that same thing. Yeah. All right. So, you know, uh, it's worth... Uh, I think CBS All Access is worth mm-hmm. getting just so you can watch the new Twilight Zone and the new uh, the new Star Trek series. Uh, um, and I guess we could talk about it, but we'll probably save it for another yeah, episode. Yeah, we will. But you know what? Eugene Roddenberry is an executive producer on this for all you hardcore Star Trek fans. If mm-hmm. you don't know that, the son of Gene Roddenberry. But... As you just saying that you were talking about people like that social commentary, guess what? If you like that social commentary in your Star Trek episodes, you can go watch the Orville right now. Oh, yeah. Because the Orville's great. That's pretty much <laughs> what they do. Almost every episode is some kind of social commentary thing like the old Star Trek. Yep. And so go watch that. Yeah. Anyways. Because it's good. <laughs> subscribe to CB all the, CBS All Access. Go watch Star Trek yeah. Discovery. And the tw- Check out the Twilight Zone if and you want. And go see Hellboy. Go it's see Hellboy. All right. Well, until next time, I'm Roger Colby. And I'm Richard Coots.